I just want to say uh, thank you. The last two weeks we've been studying an overview of Revelation 20, and they have been different. They've been weighty. They've been information heavy. They've been deep. They've been doctrinal, but they've also been uh, practical with regarding uh, the tone that we must have with others that would disagree with where we are doctrinally. We spent an entire sermon talking about how to disagree with those that might uh, have a different stance on something and how we have to fight for unity and have to fight for that theological triage, that there are things that are of utmost importance salvifically and then there are things that are not as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance, and then there's second and third and fourth. Last week, we looked at just the depth of what the Bible says in the Old Testament about the kingdom. And I told you last week, it wasn't really a sermon. It was a Bible study. And we were flying through pages. I think it was over an hour long. And not one complaint. Uh, so, I mean, that means I get to go for two hours this morning, which is awesome. Um, in fact, not only no complaints, but the last two weeks, I've had more encouraging feedback about the scriptures. I'm talking with my brother Sergio, who has filled this pulpit as well. He has said that there are times where he'll say, okay, there's nerdy stuff, and it gets pretty deep, and I won't go there. And, and he has people go up to him after the sermon and say, no, go there. We want to go there. And I, I just praise the Lord for you. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to pastor CBC, to know that I can open the word of God every Lord's Day in front of hungry people, in front of people that love the word of God and the God of this word. I get to open the word of God before you, and I know that you will take it and apply it, that this is not just an academic exercise. It's lived out during your week, and I see that, whether it's through phone calls or text or Instagram or Facebook, I see you taking the word and living it out. I see you fighting for applying even what we said two weeks ago of the tone of making sure that there are things that we will die at the stake burn at the stake for certain aspects of the gospel. And then there are things that we better be known for unity, for humility, for love, for charity, and not for what we're against. And I, I just, I praise the Lord for each and every one of you. I, I see you in my mind's eye as I prepare every week, every day as I'm studying the scriptures, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking of you, and I'm excited to be with you. And I just, I've said it before, but the Lord's Day, Sunday is my favorite day of the week, by far, full stop, no questions asked, because I get to be with you all. So, after the last two weeks of heavy lifting, of overview, we finally get to dive in six verses in Revelation chapter 20 to stare at this millennial kingdom reign and rule of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So let's read the text and we'll dive right in. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. 
And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. Then they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the hope that John was meant to receive as he saw this vision, as he recorded this vision, and as he sent it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and now to us as well. We are meant to be emboldened with hope. We're meant to be encouraged with gospel encouragement. We are meant to see the power and authority of you, our great God, over sin, over death, over the devil himself. And that's what we want to see this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Holy Spirit, do that in us and through us and for us so that we would walk away from here with the kingdom in mind such that the way that we view the world would be viewed through the lens of this kingdom. You are coming back and you will rule and reign. You will bring all the nations in subjection under you. You will be king. And already there is an aspect of that kingdom that's breaking through. And that's why we pray, as you taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. Work in us this day to long for that day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This morning in these verses, we are going to see three glorious realities of this millennial kingdom. There are more realities than just these three but John gives us a significant vision of the three realities that we're going to look at this morning. Three main realities of this thousand-year-long kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. His kingdom is going to be worldwide. He is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, as we looked at last week. The first glorious reality is the fact that Satan is removed. Glorious reality number one that we see in this text is that as the millennial kingdom is brought to this earth and Jesus rules and reigns, he gets rid of the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. This is in verses 1 through 3. John writes, then I saw, which is uh, his way of saying next in sequence. So end of chapter 19, Jesus comes back, the second coming, battle of Armageddon. He defeats all of his enemies. He destroys all of his enemies. And now he establishes the millennial kingdom. But the last enemy that he needs to destroy in a physical sense is Satan and to remove him. And he's going to remove him through this angel. I saw an angel coming down from heaven. We are not told who this angel is. Some people speculate it's Michael because we see Michael fighting with 
Satan in other passages in the scriptures. It could be Michael. It's not named. Maybe it's not Michael. We don't need to know who it is. In fact, I prefer not knowing who it is. I love that this angel is unnamed. He's obscure. We don't know who he is. Who knows? Maybe he doesn't even know who he is. Maybe there's angels lined up in heaven right now saying, can I be the guy? Can I go get Satan? Just give me the word. Send me. I want to go. He's holding the key of the abyss. We looked at the abyss uh, when we studied Revelation chapter 9, the abyss is that holding tank for devils, for demons, for fallen angels. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says it's a pit of darkness. Jude 6 describes the abyss. It's a prison for evil spirits, preventing them from roaming over the earth. This is why in Luke 8, Mark chapter 5, those demon-possessed men, uh, the demon that says we are legion, they say, please do not send us out of this world into the pit. Don't send us back to the abyss. We don't want to go there. Send us into the pigs instead. So this angel has the key to the abyss to open it and to shut it. And he has a great chain in his hand, literally in the Greek, a great chain draped over his hand. This thing is so big, he's wielding it, he's holding it, he's ready to use it. And he lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. Four names given to Satan. Four names, four titles given to the devil. He's called the great dragon, which is what we have seen all throughout the book of Revelation. It's kind of his title in the book of Revelation. He's called the serpent of old, which goes all the way back to Genesis. First of all, Genesis is an accurate historical account. There was a real serpent in the Garden of Eden who spoke to Adam and to Eve. And so this goes all the way back. So really, serpent of old and great dragon are Genesis to Revelation and the work of the devil throughout the entirety of the Bible. Number three, the title devil, used 34 times in the New Testament. It's only used in the New Testament. Diabolos, we've talked about this word before. Dia means through, balo means to throw to throw through or to throw between. The devil's goal is to divide. He wants to throw between anything he possibly can to divide. He is an accuser. He hates us. He's also called the, uh, the term Satan, Satan. It's used 53 times in the Bible. It's an adversary. It's, it's when you are known for being against somebody. You don't like them. You're against them. You're fighting against them. Satan is called the Satan, but anytime you see the definite article next to Satan, so the Satan, that means that's Satan, that means that's Lucifer, that's the devil. But the Bible also just calls people Satans, adversaries. We can be Satans. If it doesn't have the definite article, the, in front of it, it just means us fighting against each other. So finally, this fourfold titles, the, these names for the devil... Given here in Revelation 20, this angel lays hold of this devil and binds him for a thousand years and throws him into the abyss. I love that. We tend to think that the devil is very powerful, and he does have some power. But brothers and sisters, it just takes one angel. Just one angel flies down out of heaven with a great chain draped over its arm and says, here we go. Gotcha. Get out of here. One angel. We should never think less of the devil and think he has no power than we actually see biblically that he does, yes. But we should never give him more power than he actually has. How much power does the devil have? Only what God allows him to have. This is not some cosmic battle between God and the devil. The devil is a created being 
on a leash. And God the Father wields every single decision that he will ever make, ultimately for the Father's greatest glory. Throws him into the abyss for a thousand years, and he covers it, he shuts it, he, he puts the cover over it, turns the key, as it were, and then, verse 3, seals it over him. So, puts the devil in the abyss, shuts it, seals it. Uh, why the two words, shut and seal? Reminds us of uh, the garden tomb. You remember when Jesus is put into the grave after his crucifixion, he's put into the tomb, and there is the, the stone that's rolled over the cover of it to shut it, but it's sealed. What does that mean? That means that stamp is put on it. This is property of Rome. Don't mess with this because this is Roman property. That's what God's doing here. He shuts the abyss. That's all that's needed to keep the devil inside. But he seals it over to say, no one open this pit. This is the property of God Almighty. There's no early release. There's no parole. This is God's property. And he seals it so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. He had been deceiving the nations for the entirety of uh, I mean, the, the history of the Bible, but here in the book of Revelation, he's been deceiving the nations all throughout this tribulation period. He used the Antichrist, he indwelt the Antichrist, and he brought the false prophet along to bring about that Babylon of economic false religion and that, that Babylon of worshiping the beast. Finally, his deception is gone. No more influence in the world. No more ability to deceive, to blind the minds of those that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that Satan covers their eyes so they cannot see the glory of God. No more. No more impact on the devil. He's gone for a thousand years. Now, really quickly here, we need to stop because there are some who will say that the thousand years is figurative and it's the church age. We talked about this before. This is amillennialism. And they would say that the devil is not really actually bound in a place called the abyss, but more figuratively bound at the cross. So I want to just talk about those two things really briefly. Number one, is this a literal thousand years in the future, or is this a figurative period of time, church age? And usually the first argument is, people will quote the Bible where it says, a thousand years is like a day to God, right? We know that passage, so number one, that's not in Revelation, that's using some other book to interpret this book. We can do that in other places, totally fine, but we have to kind of press pause, but secondly, even if that verse does apply here, it still means this is a thousand years, right? A thousand years is like a day to God. So a thousand years, it's like a day to God, but it's still a thousand years in our mentality, in our minds. Also, just look at the use of numbers in the book of Revelation. There are over 200 numbers that are used in Revelation. And of those 200 numbers, there are really only two that are not meant to be taken literally. Those two you remember, chapter 1, the seven spirits of God, that's the Holy Spirit, but even that, so it's meant to be taken figuratively, it's the sevenfold uh, ministry of the Spirit, but that's from the book of Zechariah, it's a quotation from the book of Zechariah, where the Holy Spirit goes into the world and does seven, accomplishes seven different aspects. So even that, though taken figuratively for the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's still a literal Old Testament quotation. And then the other one you know very well, 666, which John told us, you need to be able to understand this is not just at face value, 666, there's a meaning behind that number. 
So he even told us this isn't supposed to be taken literally. It's not like if you have 666 in your social security number, you're in trouble. You're going to be the Antichrist. That's not what it means. There's a figurative understanding behind it. Those are really the only two numbers in the book of Revelation that we have not taken literally. Every other number that we've come to, we've taken at face value literally. Seven literal churches, 144,000 literal Jewish men from 12 different tribes, 200 million demons released from the abyss, seven seals, 100, or 1,260 days, an hour of silence. When a number, especially here in the book of Revelation, is given a time indicator like days, months, years, or hours, we've always taken it literally. In fact, if John wanted to say this is just a long period of time, he has used a general time period before in the past, and he, used it, he uses it again actually in verse 3. Drop down to the very end of verse 3. After these things, the devil must be released for a short time. If he wanted to say a long time, but it's an undefined figurative amount of time, he could have said a long time. If he wants it not to be specific, he uses a word that's not specific. A short time, we don't know how long. But if he wants to be very specific, which he is, he uses the word thousand years six different times in Revelation 20. There's really no reason to see it as anything other than literally six, or literally uh, a thousand years. Secondly, some people will say, okay, maybe it's literally a thousand years, but it's a reference to the church age where Satan is not bound in a literal place, but he's bound, metaphorically speaking, so that he can't deceive the nations. And the way that uh, people, if they want to view this metaphorically, the way that they would take it is when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he bound Satan and brought the ability to take the gospel to the nations where it had never been able to go before through the church. They would normally go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 29, talking about uh, Jesus says, we have to bind, first bind the strong man, then you can go in and plunder the house. So we have to bind Satan and then we can go and plunder the world with the gospel. There's a couple problems with that. Uh, number one, the gospel went to the world, to the nations, not just Israel, before Jesus died on the cross. Uh, we studied the book of Jonah together, right? Remember, Jonah is sent by God from Israel to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians. And when Jonah goes there, what happens to them? They receive, they repent, they're saved. So, yes, the devil deceives the nations, but the gospel goes in, even in the Old Testament, to bring salvation. Secondly, if you're going to say that the devil is bound currently, which I, I don't think that this text is saying that. I think this is saying in a future time period, he's going to be bound in the future, literally in the abyss. If you're going to say that he's bound now, just listen to what the Bible says he's currently doing right now. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says he's the God of this world. Satan is the God of this world. John 12.31, John 14.30, John 16.11, and 1 John 4 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. So he's not bound by any stretch of the imagination right now. He's prowling around this world like a roaring lion. John 8, 44, he's telling lies. So he's still working to deceive the nations right now. He's telling lies. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, he tempts believers to sin. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He is deceptive in his works. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He seeks to deceive the children of God now. This is the church age now. Mark 4, 15, he snatches the gospel from unbelieving hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he takes advantage of believers. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, he influences people to lie. Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, 1 John 5, 19, he holds unbelievers under his power. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he buffets the servants of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, he thwarts the progress of ministry. Luke chapter 22, verse 31, he seeks to destroy faithful believers. And Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 17, he wages war against the saints. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, he traps and deceives people, holding them captive in order to do his will. In fact, in Revelation 19, verse 20, the beast is seized, that's the Antichrist, with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. So the Antichrist was able through the uh, indwelling of the, the devil to deceive the nations. There's so much the devil's doing on the earth right now. And that's why this is a promise that one day in the future, Jesus is going to say no more. He promised that in the Old Testament to Israel. You're going to be in a place of total peace where all of your enemies are gone. So not only your political enemies, your physical oppressors around you, but your spiritual enemies as well, taken away. The reality is if God wanted to show us that Satan was totally inactive and out of touch with the world as a whole, he just could not have said it more specifically than he is right here. So the first reality of this millennial kingdom this future thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth is that the devil will be bound in the abyss so that he cannot influence or impact the world. At the end, verse 3, he must be released for a short time. Must. We don't know all of the reasons why he must be released. I think for two uh, reasons we can kind of surmise here. Number one, we're told that he's put into this abyss, which is this holding tank, but it's not purgative. It doesn't purge you of sin. He must be released after a thousand years in order to remind us that eternal torment in hell forever is not a place where you finally come to your senses and you say, I repent, and you ask for forgiveness. The devil has a thousand years in the abyss to stew on all of the mistakes that he made. And instead of being released out of the abyss and saying, God, I am so sorry, please forgive me, may I repent, he doubles down in his treachery. Secondly, he must be released in order to show us truly how sinful we are. Though he is bound for a thousand years, as we will see next week, sin still will have a certain sway in the world, such that he will show up after the thousand years are completed, and he'll find a way to deceive people yet again and bring them to fight against God. But for now, in this thousand-year period, he is bound, and he cannot influence the world. Number two, second reality. Saints will rule. Satan will be removed. And number two, saints will rule. This is verses four through six. Saints will rule in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom on earth that Jesus is going to usher in, the saints will rule. Verse four, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. So instantly... Once the devil is thrown into that abyss and he's removed, we're put back on the earth where thrones are. And my Bible says, they sat on them. So the question is, who is the they? Now, the they there is 
actually, it's added into it. It's not there in the original Greek. In fact, literally, the original sentence would read this way. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. So John says, I see thrones and people on them judging the world. That's what the text says. Who is on the throne? Who are on these thrones? The reason why the they is not more detailed and more described. I look at verses like this and I say, John, you're leaving so much out. Give us names. Give us details. And I think, do you remember the question that I asked when I'm studying the Bible? This really strange, silly question. So John wrote Revelation. I asked the question, what would John think? If he were standing here, what would John think about what would I think about what John wrote? John, we're standing right here. And I said, John, why did you leave out who the they are? Why didn't you give us names? Why didn't you give us descriptions? What would John think about what I am asking and saying about what John wrote? I think John would say, I didn't need to. I didn't need to. I think he would say, Patrick, haven't you read your Bible? Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. The saints of the Most High God will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for all of the ages to come. Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. The ancient of days will come and judgment will be passed in favor of his saints. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the pe people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. This is what we read last week in Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30 where Jesus said to the disciples, remember Peter said, hey, we've left everything, we followed you, what are we going to get? And Jesus says, you're going to get a throne in the kingdom where you're going to sit and rule and reign. And then he says, and anyone who does the same thing as you, anyone who leaves something behind to follow me, they get what you get. The apostles, all the New Testament saints, anyone who has followed Christ is going to rule and reign at some level, in some capacity, in this kingdom. Luke chapter 22, verse 30 says the exact same thing. Jesus explicitly says to the disciples, you are going to sit on thrones judging your brother in Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 through 3 tells us that the saints are going to judge the world and judge angels. That's Paul writing to believers, to saints. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus says that if we endure, Paul talks about the persecution he's experiencing, and he says, if you endure, you will reign with Christ. If you get through the end, you're going to reign with Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, we are a royal priesthood. We will reign as believers. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, uh, John had already written it. He had already seen it. To the overcomer, God says, I will give authority over the nations to rule and to reign. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, uh, John wrote this earlier in Revelation as well. He who overcomes will be able to sit on my throne, ruling and reigning with Christ. So why doesn't John give us more detail? Because it's obvious to John's readers who's going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus. The whole Bible is pointed to the reality that you as a believer are going to be with him on the earth ruling and reigning. That's why Paul said when we are raptured, when we're taken to heaven, when we're with Christ, Paul says finally we will always be with the Lord. So wherever he goes, we follow. And he's going to be here on earth. He's coming back. We saw that in chapter 19 that the saints come back with the Lord as he returns, and all of those saints are going to get thrones to sit on and to rule and to reign. That's actually the most grammatically logical position of what the they is referring to in verse 4. 
They sat on them. Who's the they? The, the nearest antecedent of a people group that we saw are the saints that came back with Jesus in Revelation 19. And since we know that angels are not going to be ruling on thrones over people, we know that those people in Revelation 19 aren't angels. They're believers, and we know that they're occupying these thrones, ruling and reigning on the earth. So who's going to be on these thrones? Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, believers, and martyrs from that tribulation period. Some see the thrones being occupied only by the martyrs, as we're going to see in the next verse, or in the next half of the verse. There's two difficulties. The martyrs aren't mentioned as being raised until after the thrones are occupied, so we've got a problem with chronology there. And then secondly, John had already told us that all believers are going to be given this promise this, to the one who overcomes. You're going to be able to sit on thrones. You're going to be able to rule and reign. You're going to be with Christ on the earth. So it's not just the martyrs. You could reach all the way back to those who come with Christ. You could reach even further back. And judgment's given to them. The thrones are occupied by believers. Judgment's given to them. This is judgment given by God to the saints uh, to enact with authority and power over the world, to do the bidding of Jesus Christ the King. According to Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38, Gentile nations and Israel itself are judged following the return of Christ. This is what we are going to be doing. And I saw, middle of verse 4, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those who had been beheaded, that word beheaded literally comes from a Greek word that's the root word for axe. Those who had been, their heads had been chopped off by an axe. Now, I don't think it's only speaking of those who had been killed by beheading because other people are killed during this time of great tribulation, this period of seven years. Other people are killed during this time in other different fashions. So it's not about the means of them being killed. It's about why they were killed. They were killed because they refused to take the mark of the beast. They were killed because they did not bow the knee to the devil, uh, to the Antichrist, and to the false prophet. They said, no, we will not bow. So it's not necessarily the way in which they're killed. It includes those that were killed by beheading, but it, it's more about why they were killed and were given a great description. They didn't uh, worship the beast. They didn't take his image or his mark. They didn't take the number. They held on to the testimony of Jesus because of the word of God. Now, why does John say it? Just, just think of John's logical progression here. Jesus comes back with all of his saints, destroys all of his enemies, and then takes the devil and removes him. And then he says, everyone gets to be here on the earth as believers. All believers get to be here and enjoy ruling and reigning with Christ. So all the Old Testament saints that Daniel talks about, they're here. All the disciples, they're here that Jesus spoke of. All the New Testament saints, they're here. So the only question that we have is, what about the martyrs during the period of tribulation and great tribulation of those seven years? What about them? Do they get it too? Or did Satan win over them? Did he destroy them so badly that they don't get it? That's why right after John says, all the Old Testament saints get it, the New Testament saints get it, the apostles get it, and those who died in the tribulation, they get it too. No one's missing out on this. They're raised from the dead. They're given the kingdom. Everyone that the devil tried to destroy, they're raised from the dead and 
they are the overcomers. Those who were special objects of Satan's anger and fury are now exalted and rewarded and blessed. So, there's no one missing out on this. If you are a believer, you are going to enjoy the rule and reign of Christ on the earth, which is, again, why we pray, your kingdom come now. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life. So, who are the rest of the dead? We can easily deduce who the rest of the dead are. The rest of the dead, so far, who has been raised from the dead? Who's not dead anymore? We have people who died before Christ are returning with Christ in Revelation 19. So they're there. They can't be the rest of the dead. We have Old Testament saints from Daniel 7. We have apostles. We have New Testament believers that are all there. And we also have those who died during the tribulation that are there. So when it says the rest of the dead, it's a categorical, categorical distinction for any non-believer. All non-believers are still dead. They're still there lying in the ground, not raised from the dead. This is a place where only believers begin in the millennial kingdom and get to enjoy this kingdom rule and reign of Christ. This is anyone who dies apart from Christ, the rest of the dead. In fact, if you go down to verse 12, we're going to pick back up with the rest of the dead at the great white throne judgment. After the thousand years is complete, uh, John writes, I saw the dead, the great and the small. This is the rest of the dead. So they're waiting now. They're not going to be raised at the beginning of this millennial kingdom. And the entirety of the millennial kingdom, they stay in the grave. Their souls in hell. But they will be raised at the end of the thousand years and after Satan's final rebellion. And they will stand before God at the great white throne judgment. That's when they're raised. So the rest of the dead is non-believers. There's a first resurrection, as John writes. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So there's two resurrections, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And these two resurrections speak of uh, one resurrection of the righteous to life and then one resurrection of the wicked at the end, at the great white throne judgment, to eternal damnation. And by the way, this is in the Bible. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, describes this resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the wicked. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, describe these resurrections, these two resurrections. Acts chapter 24, verse 15, they all speak of these resurrections and these orders, these two orders. Luke 14, 14, Luke 20, verses 34 through 36, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, speak of there's a first resurrection and a second. Some see the first resurrection here in Revelation 20, only including the martyrs only including those who were the tribulation saints who were killed for not bowing the knee, they're raised from the dead, only they are in this first resurrection. But that's too narrow because verse 6, verse six says that those excluded from the first resurrection will experience the second death. So if you're not in this resurrection, you are going to experience hell. Yes, the first resurrection applies most directly and specifically to the martyrs, but it doesn't exclude the earlier phases of the resurrection. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 involves the resurrection of uh, believers to get to heaven before the second coming of Christ. And it's not the same resurrection of the martyrs, obviously, but by implication, it's the earlier phase of this first resurrection. So, resurrection number one is believers being brought to a place of joy and bliss and enjoying the reign of Christ. Resurrection number two is a resurrection of non-believers to be judged by God and then sentenced 
to hell and hell being thrown into the lake of fire. So the rest of the dead don't come to life until after the thousand years are completed. This is the first resurrection. And blessed and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. This is the beatitude. This is the sixth of seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. You're blessed if you're in this resurrection. You and I want to be in this resurrection. Why? Because over these, the second death has no power. If you aren't in this first resurrection, the second death has power over you. And the second death is not the physical death that we die here. It's the spiritual death that we die in hell. You and I do not want to be a part of this second death. So therefore, you and I need to be a part of this first resurrection. And those who are, end of verse 6, are priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What are we doing as we rule and reign? How does this uh, functionally play itself out? We don't know everything. We don't know. The, the ministry that we have is unrevealed for us here. But we do know that it continues. Chapter 22, verse 3 and 5 says that, that this ministry continues even into the eternal state where we get to be with Christ for all of eternity. Satan is bound in this millennial kingdom. Saints rule and reign in this millennial kingdom. Finally, number three, sin's curse is reversed. Sin's curse is reversed. What will the millennial kingdom look like? These three awesome realities of the millennial kingdom, they're all found in the Old Testament about what's going to happen such that Israel will be given this beautiful thousand-year kingdom to rule and reign in peace. And there are so many verses about what it's going to look like functionally, practically on the earth. The curse is going to be lifted. It's going to be reversed. It's going to start working backwards. If you want a preview of what that looks like, just look at what happened when Jesus showed up on the earth the first time. He starts healing people. He starts, uh, the crippled are, are able to walk. The blind are able to see. The deaf are able to hear. He starts healing everyone. If you want to see just a preview, just go back to the Gospels and see the way that Jesus heals and the power that comes from him. I love that description in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that, the, that, that poem, that song that the beavers share of, of what it's going to be like when Aslan returns. In Narnia at that time, the, the white witch ruled and reigned with, with absolute evil and terror, and it was always winter, and it was never Christmas. The question is, is there ever going to be a time when this is undone, when springtime comes back? And they say this, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. Listen to just some of the verses that describe from the Old Testament what the kingdom will look like and what it will be like. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, chapter 30, verses 23 through 24, and chapter 35, verse 1, says that animals who are normally enemies will be playing together. We saw this last week, a prophecy that has not been fulfilled yet, but it will be fulfilled in that kingdom. Children will be playing with cobras. Lions are going to eat straw. This is not happening now. You don't go to the zoo and watch a zookeeper feed a, a lion straw. They drop in like the hind leg of a zebra, and you hide your kids, right, as they're just demolishing this thing. Joel chapter 2, verses 21 through 27 says there's going to be plenty of food for everyone. 
Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, and chapter 33, verse 24, and chapter 35 talks about healing for the nations. People are going to be healed physically. Isaiah 65 talks about people being very healthy and being healed. Isaiah 30 talks about this incredibly high birth rate because diseases are being taken away and the curse of of diseases and of barrenness are, are being reversed. So there's this incredibly high rate of birth. And the rate of population growth during the period is going to be far higher than any other period because death itself will be working backwards. This is Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. It reads this, No longer will there be in Jerusalem and Israel and in the world an infant who lives but only a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for youth will die at the age of 100. So youth, youth, that's not even reaching to a teenager in our common vernacular. So a 10-year-old now is going to be 100 then. Youth are going to be living out the age of 100, and the the one who doesn't reach the age of 100 will be considered accursed. So if you don't reach the age of 100 in the millennial kingdom, something's wrong with you. Something's weird. People are going to look going, what's wrong with that person? That's not normal. That's like us today looking at an infant or looking at a, a young child who dies. We say something's wrong with that. In the millennial kingdom, that's going to be people over the age of 100. We're all going to be living so much longer. The people who are entering into the millennial kingdom as physical people will be living a lot longer. We'll talk a lot about this. If you have questions, it's good. We'll talk about this next week and how you get into the millennial kingdom. This is why there's a, a millennial temple. Remember we talked about this in Ezekiel 40 through 48. There's this temple. Never before we've seen this temple with its dimensions in Israel ever. We've never seen this temple before. So this is a future temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48, and it describes sacrifices happening. And a lot of people have a problem with that because they think, wait, Jesus died once for all. We don't need sacrifices. There's nothing that's speaking of these sacrifices as efficacious for salvation. They're not bringing about salvation or restoration and reconciliation with Christ. What I think that they're doing is they are kind of like what our communion is. They're a memorial, but they're a memorial that's graphic. And the reason why it's a graphic memorial is because there are going to be people living in this kingdom, born from natural uh, human people that have not been raised from the dead. We'll talk about this next week. Uh, People that are born into this kingdom that still have a sin nature, they need Christ. They need to repent. They need to be saved. And if you as a parent say the, the wages of sin is death, they know nothing of what death is. They live in a kingdom where death is not existent. I mean, it's so far removed. People are living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that if you say you will die if you don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they're going to say, what's death? I think that's why there's sacrifices in the millennial temple. You take your child to the millennial temple. You take them in the millennial kingdom to that temple and you watch a lamb get its throat slit and bleed out and die this graphic, horrific, grotesque death. And you say, that's what you and I deserve because of our sin. But now let me take you to King Jesus. Let me show you the Lamb of God who was slain for you so that you don't have to go through that death. It's going to be an amazing place. There's going to be religious festivals, Zechariah 14, 16. Jesus is going to renew the earth. He has to renew the earth because of all that took place during the tribulation. It's a mess of a place. And so he shows up and renews it. It's beautiful. This is, by the way, uh, we sing the Christmas song, Joy to the World. Isaac Watts wrote it in the 1700s. He wrote it not thinking about Jesus' first coming. He wrote it thinking about Jesus' second coming. We, We sing it about the first advent of Christ, but Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. But notice the verses that he puts after that. 
He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's millennial kingdom language. He's going to reverse the curse. The thorns that infest the ground are a product of the curse, and Jesus is going to do away with that. It's going to be a beautiful time. Satan's removed, saints reign, and sin's curse is reversed. What do we do with this? We're going to talk a lot more about it next week, Lord willing, in verses 7 through 10. But what do we do with these three realities today? Number one, remember that the devil is real. Flee from his vices, flee temptation, flee immorality, flee sin. While he is here and while he is active, fight against him and then run away from him. Pray and ask God for his help. You cannot defeat the devil on your own. Only God can do that. Acknowledge his subtlety, his craftiness. He sometimes comes as an angel of light. Resist his advances. Stand against him. Overcome him. Fight against him. But do all of that knowing there's a time when he's going to be taken away and removed for a thousand years. Then after that, he must be released for a short time. And then he's removed for good. So fight now knowing there's an end. Some of my coaches used to tell me all the time, there's going to be a buzzer that sounds at the end of the game. There's a last pitch. There's a last inning. There's a last quarter and the game's over. You will be able to stop playing at some point. So fight now and rest then. Fight now and rest then. Number two, cling to God's promises. Cling to God's promises. He made all of these promises in the Old Testament, and they're coming true. They will happen. Cling to those promises. What promises has he given to you that you find hard to believe? Maybe you find them hard to believe because they haven't happened yet, or they're taking way longer than you thought they were going to. Just ask Abraham, ask Moses, ask David, ask all of those Old Testament saints. Did God's promises happen when you thought they were going to? The book of Hebrews says, nope, and some of them haven't even happened yet. But they will, because we serve a faithful and trustworthy God. And finally, number three, which resurrection are you a part of? There's a fork in the road here. There's a fork in the road. There are two futures. Which do you want? Which will be yours? Will you be a part of that first resurrection, having died twice in this life? You died to your sin before you died physically, and therefore you're raised again never to die ever? Or will you die once, living in sin here, dying physically, enjoying your sin here, loving your sin here, dying physically, and then being raised again at the end to die yet again? Brothers and sisters, I plead with you, if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you know that you're a part of that first resurrection, let's live like we are. Let's live with confident assurance. This is not the kingdom. <laughs> we look around at the world, and it's a terrible place. This isn't the kingdom, but it's coming. So pray for it, work for it, but know that it's not now. It's coming but live like it's coming. And if you're here this morning and you don't know why 
Jesus is worthy of being followed. Why? It's a beautiful thing that King Jesus is going to rule and reign. If you don't know that you're going to be part of that first resurrection, you don't know that your sins have been paid for, today is the day of salvation. I'm so glad you're here this morning to see these words, this text in front of our eyes, to know that there is a penalty for death and that there is a second death that's worse than physical death. But to know that King Jesus has made it possible for you to bypass that and never to deal with that because he died in your place on your behalf. Turn from sin today and trust in Jesus Christ, our King. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing love. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. We love him and we long for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make this happen today. Make this happen tomorrow. Start the work of bringing the kingdom now. And until that day, make us faithful, knowing that the labor that we live out, toiling, striving, fighting, it's never in vain because you already fought and won at the cross. You have conquered the grave and you have given us hope and everlasting life. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together. Our benediction this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. May you take that promise with you this day as you worship the Lord and live in light of his second coming. And may he be your greatest treasure both now and forevermore. God bless you and have a great Lord's Day.